Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here. We're thankful that you've joined us today for our time of worship. My name is Daniel Renstrom. I'm the worship pastor here at Brook Hills. We are today continuing a series. We're in the study of 1 Peter. You can go ahead and get your Bibles out right now and turn to 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1, 13 through 21, the second section uh, here in uh, 1 Peter. You know, if, you are, uh, if you're new with us, if you've only been checking us out for a couple of weeks, maybe you came on Easter and you decided, you know, I want to keep hearing what they're talking about. I'd like to hear a, a little bit more. I'd love to tell you a little bit about this morning. So this is a really normal morning for us. Every Sunday, just about every Sunday, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to come together. We sing a lot of songs together. We pray over God's word. We listen to it in, in the different readings. We have a time maybe of greeting each other. And then we have this extended period of time where somebody preaches the word. Usually it's Pastor Matt Mason today. It's me. But we spend time and we just let the word of God talk to us. And so my job today is to explain the word of God. Just let it ex be explained, but then hopefully apply it to all of our lives. Now, you might hear that and you go, you know, that is a lot of time for us to spend on, uh, on, on the Word of God. Well, this is, this is what we believe, that we have no other authoritative way of knowing what God wants for us other than in His Word. Like, you might come here this morning and think, I, I believe that Jesus is the new and better avenger, or that Thanos is like a prowling lion seeking to destroy us, or something like that. You might believe those things, but we're not going to preach about them because this. This is the reason. Because we don't believe that any of those things can change us. Only the Word of God, looking at the Word of God, seeing it, is going to be the thing that transforms us. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, you can actually, even if you want to, just kind of jot that down to the side. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's a passage that tells us how God likes to transform us. How the, the function of his transforming us. And it, it says something very interesting about transformation, like what we're just talking about. It says first that when you look at the word of God, that's how God transforms you. And then it says one other thing, that God transforms us one degree at a time, one little bit at a time. I read an article this past week about uh, flights and a one degree change, how much of a dramatic difference just one degree change can make to a flight path. So say you were leaving from Los Angeles, you wanted to get to New York City, and your pilot for some reason decided, I'm so bored with the way that I've normally been flying there, I just want to make some changes today. So he said, I'm going to do that. So he decides, I'm just going to change it like five or six degrees just like a little, little bit. And, and as you're leaving California, or maybe you're flying over, I don't know, Arizona, wherever that is, as you're flying over those places, you might not even be able to discern that there is a difference. But listen, as you travel the distance towards New York City, you would end up 250 miles south of where you were heading. You would end up in Washington, D.C. and not in New York City. So why, why say that? Well, I say that because of this. A small change over a long period of time, has a dramatic impact in our lives. A dramatic impact. One degree of transformation might not look like a whole lot today, but it has a massive impact over the long run. And I, I bring this up because of this, because today we're going to be thinking about transformation. A transformation that should be happening in your life. And what's, what's happening in the book is that verses 1 to 12, Peter has been talking to us about what hope is. 
And now he's turning a corner. Now he's turning a corner and he's going to tell us what hope should do in your life. He's been looking at what hope is, but now he's going to say, this is hope. This is what hope should do in your life. So Peter's going to give them three commands. When I read it in just a moment, I'm going to try to draw it out so you can hear it as I read it. But the three commands, and you can actually go ahead and fill these in. I know some of you are just going to love that. You get to already fill those little blanks in. It's just amazing. Yes. All right. Here's all three of them right here. We are going to be transformed by hope, transformed to be holy, and we're transformed to fear. Hope, holy, fear. You know, we all love transformation stories because I think this is the reason why. We love transformation stories because we love to see things change right in front of us. You know, every other Thursday, my family has a, a pretty significant transformation that happens in our home. We have a small group that meets in our house every Thursday. And our home goes from being like a hazmat zone to like magazine shoot ready in 30 minutes, like under 30 minutes. It's, it's like usually one of the most amazing transformations that I see on any kind of regular basis. Now, a week and a half ago, we had to cancel small group because of some scheduling conflicts. And you know what has not happened in our house in all of that time? Any kind of cleaning, right? And here's the reason why. It's not because we couldn't find 30 minutes to invest in a little bit of cleaning. It's because the motivation of shame was gone. <laughs> That's why. Shame leads to cleanliness, at least in the Renstrom household, all right? And this tells us something really, really important about transformation. Transformation, for it to stick, for it to have lasting impact, there needs to be some kind of rock-solid motivation, right? There needs to be some kind of resource fueling transformation. And praise God, y'all, I'm so happy I get to say this. Praise God, in our passage today, we have that kind of resource. We have those resources. So I want to read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. It's going to be up on the screen, but if you can, go ahead, look at your word, follow along with me, okay? Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, and here's our first one. Set your hope completely on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. There's a second one. For it's written, be holy because I'm holy. And if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourself in reverence. Number three, during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were not redeemed with, from your empty way of life inherited from your father's not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but, in, in, but was revealed, sorry, in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of this passage, I want us to see something really important. I want you to go back, look down at your Bible, and look at the very first word that we come to in verse 13. It's the word therefore. 
And Peter is wanting us to see something. As he puts that word therefore, he's wanting us to look at all of the implications of everything that he has just said. Now, if you look back at verses 1 to 12, you would see that there is not one command. Not one. All that Peter has done over verses 1 to 12 is tell them that they have mercy from God. That they have a living hope. That they have an inheritance that's like a billion times better than if Bill Gates was their dad. And he's also telling them, like what Pastor Matt said last week, that God is keeping them for the inheritance and he's keeping the inheritance for them. Theologians often explain this idea by saying this. They talk about how the indicatives of the gospel precede the imperatives of the gospel. An indicative is a stated, it's stated something that is true. It's a, a statement that is true. An imperative is a command. So an example of this might be if I said something along these lines. An indicative statement would be the carrot cake pop at Steel City Pops is the best of all the pops. That is an undeniably true fact, okay? You cannot argue with that, all right? We can go prove it later on. An imperative statement would be, you must go get a carrot cake pop. Now, I could command that to you, but I'm not going to, okay? So um, that's an indicative and an imperative. Listen to what Edward Clowney says about this. He's commenting on this passage, and it's going to be up on the screen. It's really helpful to think about this. Imperatives, indicatives. The imperatives of the Christian life always begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. Now think about how we see this play out in the Old Testament, okay? Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 is the preamble to all of the Ten Commandments where God is telling them his rules for them. And how does it start? I think it's going to be up on the screen as well. It says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. So what's he saying to them? Before he ever gets to any rules, he's saying to them, I flexed my arm towards Egypt. You are my chosen possession. I brought you out of there. Now, here's what I want you to do. Do you hear that? The indicative, everything that's true about you, and then the imperative. Now, I want you to follow me. I want you to do something. Tim Keller says this about uh, this idea. He says, in every other religion, the indicative flows from the imperative, which means because I do this, because I do something, therefore I'm a child of God. But only in Christianity does the imperative flow from the indicative. Listen to this. Because I am in Christ, therefore I can obey. He's saying that Christians, we have uh, everything that we just talked about just a moment ago. Christians, we have resources to fuel our transformation. We can follow God not in hope that he accepts us, but because he has accepted us. Praise God for this truth. Christian, I hope that as you hear me saying all this, that it is just reorienting the way that you think about God in your life. The way that God talks to you in his word, the way that he commands you. I hope that he is reorienting even something in your heart right now. And if you're not a Christian, again, I said it just a moment ago, if you're visiting us, we're so thankful that you're here. I hope that as you hear me talking about that, that there's this faint echo of joy kind of coming up, waking up in your heart. 
just remembering, just realizing the very thought that there is a God that's nothing like what you would find in this world. He doesn't approve of you after you've done something great for him. He offers you forgiveness because of what Christ has done in your place. Praise God for that truth, that we have resources for this transformation. So we're going to look at the first fill in the blank here, and that's transformed to be hopeful or transformed for hope. So if you've been paying attention to this letter, then you know that Peter is really interested in the idea of hope. He's already talked about how we have a living hope from the resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Later on in our chapter, he's going to talk about hope again. And then in this section, 113, he gives us the main verb, the main command, and he says this, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, why is hope so important to Peter? Well, I I think that we should think for just a moment about what hope is not. So hope is not wishful thinking about tomorrow, like something like this. I hope that I get to go on a second date with this person. Or I hope that once they graduate, they'll move out. Something like that. Our, Our culture might use the word as a synonym for the word wish, but that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the assurance that what I hope for is actually going to happen. It's the conviction that the thing that I'm hoping for is as sure as if it's already happened. I heard a story recently about a girl in Brazil that went to go visit her grandmother. And her grandmother was a devout Catholic and she had figurines to different uh, saints around her home and she would pray to them. And so this little girl picked up one of the figurines And she was looking at it, and she asked the family, she sat down and said, does St. Anthony's, this is the figurine that they had, St. Anthony, does St. Anthony have long hair? And and the family was like, I don't don't know if St. Anthony has long hair. And and then the girl said, does St. Anthony have pointy ears? And they were like, I don't don't know. So they they Google searched St. Anthony, and they found out that St. Anthony doesn't have long hair or pointy ears. St. Anthony looks like any other monk. He he just kind of looks like an old monk. And so that's when they tried to look up what figurine were they looking at, and they realized that they were looking at Elrond, the half-elf king from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) realized that the grandmother thought this was St. Anthony for a pretty long time. Now listen, we don't believe that praying to saints is even biblical, but every one of us can identify with the sadness of leaning on something that didn't have the ability to carry our hope, right? Leaning on something that was going to topple over. It couldn't support the weight of our hope. But friends, listen, this will not be our experience as we fully hope in the grace that will be brought to us, hope fully in the grace that's going to be brought to us. Why? Why can we have so much confidence, so much boldness in saying that? Well, I think I want us to just think for a minute about what Peter says in 1-3 again. He says that we have, uh, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So listen, the ground The assurance of all of our hope is something that happened in the past. And that means that when God says to us, I have even more hope coming for you. I have even more salvation coming for you one day. And you're going to realize it one day. What do we do in our hearts? We go, I believe you. I believe you, God. 
And this is what he's saying here, right? To set your hope on what will come. Grace that you don't have yet, but grace that's coming. You're gonna get the rest of it soon. It's coming to you, and guess what? It's glorious. It's glorious grace that's coming to you. Why is it so glorious? Why should we hope in it so much? Well, friends, just think about this. When we are with God, that we will finally, when we're finally with God, that we will be free from the life of sin that all of us are plagued with right now. You just think about how exhausting a life of sin is for the Christian. Now, I know in, in my own life, it can sometimes take me two and three days to get over something that I've said with my mouth that's been hurtful to somebody else. Like I, I go and I have to confess that sin and then I spend a couple of days sad that I would do that to the person. So then I have to preach the gospel to myself. Do any of you ever do this? Preach the gospel to myself, remind myself that my good works didn't get me to God and that I'm not gonna sin my way out of it. It's exhausting. And this is what the life of a Christian is like. That's what your life should be like. Always doing that, it's a life of repentance. I read a study about how in 2014 they did this study for all of these people that have gone through AA training and they found that one in 15 people that entered AA actually stay sober. Now just think about that, one in 15. Why such a small amount of people? I think one of the reasons, there's tons of reasons, one of them is that it's exhausting. It's so difficult. Friends, listen to this. When Christ comes again and gives me, gives you our full salvation that we only have a promise of now, when that happens, we'll be free from this exhausting life of sin and anger and lust. And guess what? The very promise of that day coming is life-giving to us now. The very promise of looking at that day. Like Pastor Matt said last week, for the Christian, suffering now, glory to come. Difficulty now, glory in the future. And Peter knows that setting our hope on God in this way is really difficult. So he's given us two ways to accomplish that. If you look back in your text at verse 13, the next thing he says, the way that we do this is to get our minds ready for action. Now this phrase in the original language is a really interesting phrase. And it's, it's actually this, if we were just to say what's, what, what he says here. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, I promise that none of you have used that slang term anytime soon, right? What does that mean? Well, well, listen, when this was written, everybody was wearing robes, okay? And so to be able to run fast, what you had to do is get your robe, pull it up, tuck it in your belt so that you were able to be able to run fast. You were able to, to get where you're going. Here is my 2019 version of saying something like this. And I, I just want to preface this by saying that I am the only guy living in a house with, uh, with four girls, okay? Wife and three, three little girls. That I think that you should turn your toga into yoga pants. I thought that would get a better response. Okay. Um, <laughs> Maybe a better one would be something like this. You need to turn your robe into running shorts. What's, P what's Peter saying here? He's saying that I want you to apply that strategy to your mind. Like get your mind ready for action. And what does that mean? It means this, that I don't want to take on things that are going to slow my mind down towards God. I don't want to take on things that are mental weights, mental hindrances. Why? Because I want to be able to run fast after God. 
Don't miss the connection here between your mind and your hope. Hope is a byproduct of what the mind is set on. Let me say that one more time. Hope is a byproduct of what the mind is set on. You know, you don't just gobble up uh, hope points like it's a video game or something. It takes mental effort. We memorize the word of God. We think about it. We think about the promises of God. We're memorizing them, and, and then we take them in. Friends, mental laziness clogs up the pipeline of hope that could be coming to you. Christian, this is the first place to go. If you feel hope waning in your heart, like if you feel like there's this lukewarm longing and this half-hearted hoping happening in your heart and you feel like there's more hope draining out of you than is being filled back in, I want to encourage you to get your mind ready to run after God. And this is probably what Jesus meant when he said to his disciples, you remember this moment? Jesus said to his disciples the night that he was going to be betrayed, he said, don't fall asleep. Don't get drowsy. Why? You're going to need hope tonight. And that's why you need an alert mind. Look at the other participle that uh, Peter uses here. He says, be sober-minded. First he says, be ready to run. Now he's saying, be clear-minded. Don't be impaired. What does drinking a lot of alcohol do to a person? It makes you mentally hazy. It keeps you from considering what is dangerous around you. You know, even unbelievers know that you should never, ever drink alcohol at a function with your boss. Why not? Because you're coursing with liquid foolishness and you're going to say something that you regret, right? Even unbelievers know that. But what is it like to be mentally impaired without alcohol in your system? Well, I think it means that we can get so drunk, so to speak, on the things of this world. Work and wealth and image and relationships and all of the things that kind of spin off of all of that. All these obsessions and they cloud us, spiritually speaking. Friends, Peter is giving us a command here, but he's also giving us a really helpful diagnostic test. If we're mentally drunk, then we aren't going to be able to, as one commentator put this, run after God. And we want to do that, don't you? We want to run after God. Here's what we want. If I was going to summarize everything I've been saying to you, I would say it like this. That we want true things about God to fill up our minds so that it's memorized, internalized, it's sung, it's prayed, which is ultimately going to lead to me being fully hoping in God, fully hoping in God. The second thing that we're going to look at today is that we're transformed to be holy. We're transformed to be holy. That's our second point. So let's look at Peter's next command. And notice how he begins in verse 14 there. Look back at your Bible, verse 14. He says, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Isn't it interesting that, again, Peter has connected our actions with our minds, our ignorance. He's doing that again. Before you came to Christ, you had these evil desires. They characterized your way of life. Like you thought you knew what real life, real joy was like. But that was just a display of your former ignorance. You know, I think that actually it shows a lot of wisdom on our part, Christian, when we don't quickly give in to the impulses that just come so naturally to us. 
It shows that we are distrusting what those former ignorances were like. Before you came to Christ, you had all these, these former ignorances that characterized you. And look at the other reason that he says that you're to walk away from this old way of life, that you have a brand new family. Look at verse 14 again. How does it start? He says, as obedient children. So he's saying to them, you've got a new family. But then look at what it says in verse 17. He says, if you appeal to him as father, so you have a new family, you have a new father. What's he saying? He's saying the reason that you don't obey those old passions is that you've got a new family and a new father, and that's not what your new father looks like. That's not what your new family looks like. So what does their father look like? What does our father look like? Well, the text says that he's holy. Our God is holy and that we should be holy as God is holy. Now, so many of us hear this call from Peter to be holy and we immediately think about the people in our life that try to appear to be holy in front of us. And frankly, they're just kind of annoying, aren't they? It's kind of annoying to see somebody trying to be holy around us. Like maybe you would say, hear them say something like, well, I don't know who won the Rockets game last night because uh, I was reading my Bible and I was getting ready for church. So I don't know. Or, no, I didn't see that uh, meme on Twitter that was everybody's laughing about because I don't look at Twitter, and neither should you, right? Maybe they say things that there's an appearance of holiness. You know, so many of us hear that, and, and we're kind of off-put by it, but lots of us don't just think that about those kind of holy-ish people. We actually also think that about God. I want you to listen to something that C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity about, uh, uh, about God's holiness. He said, there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. And he replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who is always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying themselves and then trying to stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> Friends, if we think this way about God, it is a display of our former ignorances tainting our vision about what God is really like. Now, some of these descriptions kind of get us towards what is meant, captures what is meant by the word holy. It means to be set apart, that God is not like us. God's not ordinary. I want you to listen to what it says in Exodus 15. It says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? You know what the answer to that is? No one. No one's like him. And although we talk about God as he's being, he's set apart from us in his attributes, when we talk about his holiness, we're talking about his absolute moral purity. That there's no stain of sin in him. There's no hint of impurity. And because of this, it means that God cannot be agnostic towards your sin, my sin. As if God might say, it's cool for you to be sinful over there, but I'm just going to kind of be over here. I'm going to be holy over here. No, friends, God is not morally indifferent. He's not morally neutral towards sin. I want you to listen to what it says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. I think it's going to be up on the screen. Your eyes, God, are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Friends, no unholy thing can abide in the presence of God. Now, you might hear me say that, and you're going to just kind of toggle back in your mind to the command that we were looking at a moment ago. And you might just think to yourself, I've been commanded to be holy like God is holy. Like, how can I do that? 
I don't have the resources, I don't have the ability to be holy like God is holy. And guess what? You're right. (laughs) That's the good news of the gospel. That's why God came to you. And it says in the Bible that Jesus, he who was fully God in the flesh, that he lived a perfectly sinless life. He was perfectly holy all the time without fail. And kids, this is what this means, that Jesus never erupted in anger at his brothers and sisters. Just think about that. He never erupted in anger. The wonderful truth about Jesus is that, as one commentator put this, the holiness of Jesus doesn't completely destroy us. It heals us. I want you to think about this, that in, in the times when, when the Bible were written in, in Israel, unclean people, sick people could not be around the clean people, the healthy people. And so they had to live over, over here. And if an unclean person saw a clean person, a healthy person coming close by, they had to yell out, I'm unclean. You're not allowed to come over here because you might be, they, they would think that you, my sickness could infect all of the, all the tribe, all the camp, all the people. So you had to keep your distance. So just think about this. How amazing it is that holy Jesus, when he comes to sick sinners, when he comes to them and he actually touches a sick person, what happens? Their sickness doesn't get on Jesus. His health, his wholeness, his, his wholeness gets on them, Right? Friends, this is what we see all over the gospel, and it's a display to us. It's a picture of something that happens. It's a picture of what Jesus does to us in our sin. When we reach out to him, his holiness doesn't destroy us. It heals us. It restores us. You know, if you're not a Christian here, I just want to say this again really, really clearly. That if we are going to dwell with a holy God in heaven forever, that if we're going to be with him, that we have to be just as holy as he is. And this is why Jesus came for us. This is what he does for everyone who trusts in him. He completely heals us. He completely restores us. He gives us his righteousness and his holiness. But without the holiness of Christ in you, on you, for you, that you are going to live forever apart from him because you cannot dwell with him because he's holy. But you know, that's not the only type of holiness that Peter wants us to know about. He also wants us to grow in our holiness. If God is completely, if God completely loves and values and upholds the worth of his holiness at all times, then my growth, your growth in looking like or in being more holy looks like us valuing his worth, upholding his infinite value, living as though it is unparalleled in our hearts. Now I want to show you how this works in Numbers chapter 20. It's going to be up on the screen. But to set up this, this, uh, this time, I want to just tell you what's happening. God has come to Moses and he said, I want you to speak to that rock. And water's going to come out of the rock for all the people. And so then Peter, I'm sorry, <laughs> That's anachronistic. Um, Moses and uh, Aaron take the staff. They walk up to it. And instead of obeying God, look at what happens here. Then Moses and Aaron gather the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out of this rock for you? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to speak. And what does he do? He strikes it. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and and so did their livestock. And then listen to what it says next. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
because you did not believe me. Listen to this. Because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And so I find this to be so incredibly instructive to, this, uh, to us. Listen to this. Obedience to the Lord is an upholding of his holiness. Why? Because we're saying with our lives that I believe his decrees, his standards, his plan, his ideas, they're so much better than my own. Our lives are supposed to be this megaphone that goes out that says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. My life, with my life, I want you to be seen as holy as you really are. So I, I want to leave you with, I want to give you, rather, four exhortations as you think about what does it mean to be holy. And the first one is that we need to change our vocabulary. You might need to change your vocabulary. Change your vocab. You might hear a Christian say at some point, or you might even say at some point, you're talking about your life with Christ, and you might say a couple sentences like this, like, I came to Christ, I'm full of sin, and I am incapable of following God and, and loving him and doing what he commands me to do. Now, when you hear something like that, you might be kind of encouraged. Why? Because that person has been gripped by their sinfulness and the holiness of God. But on the other hand, it's, it's, a, it's an idea that needs to be corrected. Why? Because like we said a moment ago, friends, we have resources fueling our transformation. So Christian, you can be holy. You can follow God in holiness. That's what, that's what it said. I want you just to think a, a little bit about how this happens, though. You might just think, how in the world am I supposed to happen? How is this supposed to happen? Well, just think about what it says in Romans chapter 6, that we were buried, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, listen, we too might be raised to walk in newness of life. Christian, you have new life, new habits, new language, a new vision for your sexuality. And if it's, that's true, then even though it's imperfect, then you should always be walking towards God in more and more holiness. So, but you might say this to me. You might say, well, then how in the world am I supposed to have that happen? I feel like I am just really sinful all the time. Well, one, an illustration I like to use when I am counseling people is I like to think about two trees that live inside the Christian, okay? The, the, the old tree is the tree of sinfulness. And if you've come to Christ, it's crippled, but it's still there. But the Christian also has a new tree that when you came to Christ, it sprang up to life. And the, this is the way, the way that we make progress as a Christian is by starving this tree and feeding the other tree. That don't let any nutrients get to that old, wicked, evil tree. Starve it as much as you can, but then plant that other tree next to flowing water, next to the word of God, and it's gonna grow up. The second one, we don't have a lot of time to, to look at this, but I'm just gonna give it to you and you can kind of think about it later. The second one is earnestly seek transformation, not for others to see, but for who you should be. It's such an impulse in all of us, isn't it? For people to see my holiness more than what I should be. The third one is this. I want to encourage you to make your life count. Make your life count. Now, can you remember 
like all these kids that stood up just a moment ago, graduating high school, graduating college, can you remember the feeling in your heart when one of those milestones happened and just the desire, the ambition that was in your heart to go and change the world? To just go do something that was just massive and big and God-sized. And I'm like a lot of you. I want to do that too. I want God to use my life. But I, wanna, I want you to listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 as you think about what I need to do to be able to have that kind of impact. So you might ask that question, what do I need to do? Do I need to go learn another language? Do I need to take karate? Do I need to go get a master's? What do I need to do to get that kind of impact? Look at what he says in 2 Timothy 2. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Isn't that amazing? If you want to be as useful as you can be to God, Work on your character. Just work on the things that nobody ever sees. Maybe, maybe it's just shutting down a website, shutting down a TV show, opening up a book, spending time in God's word. People are never going to see that, but that is the way that you're going to make the most massive impact on the world around you. The last one is to enjoy life. Enjoy life. There's a question that's kind of posed later on in, sec- in 1 Peter chapter 3, and it's, the question is, uh, do you want to have a life free of turmoil? Do you want to enjoy your life? Do you want to have a life of enjoyment? Well, he says in 1 Peter 3, you can even jot that down next to it, 1 Peter 3.10, he says, listen to this, let that person keep their tongue from evil, lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. What, what's he saying there? Do you want to enjoy your life? Then follow God in holiness. That's how you're going to follow, that's how you're going to enjoy life the most. Okay, last one, transform to be fearful. Some of your translations probably say the word fear there, where where the CSB actually uses the word reverent. We're saying fear here, and I'm going to try to unpack this just a little bit. But it's a fear, not of terror, but of reverence for God. There's a reverence towards God. And the basis of this is to keep us from justifying any kind of sin in our life. Like David Helm says this. He says that we wouldn't take grace for granted. And what does it mean that we would take it for granted? It means that we would presume upon grace. Maybe feeling like I can just enjoy this little sin. I could just savor it for a little while because I know that God loves me. I'm in his forever family. I kind of, I, I raised my hand. I made a decision at some point. But friends, this kind of callousness to sin should be a really fearful thing to all of us. Peter is saying that uh, we should live reverently because we know that God judges impartially. He doesn't show favorites. And although the thing that justifies us before God is our faith, the way that that is shown is my deeds. My deeds are going to show you what has gripped my heart. I've been so helped by what John Piper says about this passage. He says this. That we should fear conducting ourselves as though the ransom were not that precious to us. We should be fearful of that. What's he saying? He's saying, be fearful that we might live in a way that would betray our lack of uh, satisfaction in God. That That God is not enough for us. That we need more, we need different, we need new, we need it now. 
I have over the last three years become a huge country music fan. And I know that some of you are looking down on me now, but I don't care. I love it, and I will for a long time. But I want to tell you something that I actually really dislike about country music that I hear all the time. It's this idea in country music, it's like a sappy sentimentality towards Christianity. It says something like, I can live as crazy I want, as I want on Friday, but I'm going to be in church on Sunday. Well, maybe two times a month, but I'm going to be in church on Sunday. Or maybe it's an idea that I'm going to sleep around, I'm going to have fun, I'm going to do whatever, but I'm going to praise God for my truck and my church and my country or something like that. Now, those aren't like uh, actual quotes um, <laughs> from a song. But what are they saying when they say that? They're saying that I'm kind of hoping that God can be like a little hocus pocus for my life, right? Like, like he's a condiment on top of everything else. But friends, God doesn't want to be just a condiment. God doesn't want to be sprinkled on for good luck. He doesn't want half your devotion, some of your time. God wants everything. He wants everything. You should be fearful. I should be fearful that with my life, I am saying that I've got Monday to Saturday, but you can have Sunday. We don't get to negotiate the terms of the contract with God, friends. And to be just a little bit more pointed with this idea, I want you to listen to this. I am fearful that so much of Birmingham has come under the grip of this idea. And if you're here today and you think that what God wants most from you is that you would attend church every now and then, kind of like he's a college professor that's most interested in attendance, then I'm afraid that you might not understand the gospel. Friends, these verses are saying that it should be fearful to us that our deeds would show who our God really is. Friends, let that fear drive you away from hoping in those things that they would deliver you and let them drive you to Christ. But Peter's saying one last thing, and it's the last thing that we're going to look at. He says one more thing, and he says that we should fear living this way because we know that we've been ransomed at an infinite cost. I love all of the transformation that Peter is after here. You can kind of just feel him leaning in. And he's almost like he's saying, if, I, if you haven't found a compelling argument yet, can you argue with this? Christ has redeemed you. He's won you in order that you would live differently. And it's a difference that should not have this little small impact on our life. It should have a massive impact on all of our lives. You can look back later today, but verses 18 to 19 talk about this. And this is how I would summarize what he says in verses 18 and 19. I think that he's saying that the power that saved me is also the power that now sanctifies me. The power that saved me also is the power that sanctifies me. Another uh, a commentator says this about those verses. It says that the power of the liberator defines the extent of the liberation. The power of the liberator defines the extent of the liberation, the freedom. So what does that mean? It means that if you have a really powerful liberator, that you get a really powerful freedom. Think about this. If I was to go this afternoon to the Birmingham Zoo, and on the way there, I felt like, you know what? I've really enjoyed Harry Potter lately. I'm feeling some Harry Potterness in me. I'm going to pick up a stick, and on the way there, I'm going to I'm going to go to the zoo, and I'm going to say to all those rhinos and the and, and elephants, I'm going to say, you know what? You have lived in captivity long enough. 
I'm going to say, you can be free, and I wave my little stick wand in front of them, what would happen to all of all that? Nothing. Praise the Lord. We don't need rhinos, right? <laughs> we need rhinos running around Birmingham right now. Why? Why not? Because the power of the liberator was minuscule. So the liberation was tiny. It couldn't do what I said they should do. On September 30th, 1938, the Prime Minister of England, a guy named Neville Chamberlain, made what is now to be seen as a pretty embarrassing speech. He held in his hand the Munich Agreement that he thought was going to assure all of the people that he was speaking to of peace that would come, that, liter- that Hitler would stop his invasion. And he famously said these words, okay? He said, everybody should go home, have a nice quiet sleep, because there will be peace in our time. Have you heard that phrase? Peace in our time. Now why, now, why has that phrase become so famous? Well, it's because of this. Because Chamberlain, history would show, had no power to actually come through with what he promised. The people of Great Britain, they actually saw a lot of unpeaceful days. Now, why say that? Friends, there is no earthly possession that could buy you freedom, the freedom that you have in Christ The wealthiest people of our day, they can't stop death. They can't stop sinning. They can't prevent any hurt. Money can't buy them those things. And if you feel like your money, your things are going to be what buys you freedom, your eternal happiness, then you will soon see that the extent of the liberation, your freedom is really weak. But friends, if you have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb, slain before the foundation of the earth, slain for your sin, slain in your place, then the power of your liberator sets the terms of your liberation, and do you know what those are? Complete freedom, dead to sin, brand new life, alive to God. Praise God, right? Praise God. So two things I want to leave you with, Brook Hills. The first is this. I want you to remember as we began our time just thinking about how transformation just takes so long. And I want to encourage you to set your mind on hoping, set your mind on obeying God and fight discouragement that might come that it's not happening overnight. Remember that the way that he changes and transforms you, it's going to be like compounding righteousness over time. And it's going to be amazing. But don't be discouraged that it's not happening just as quickly as you want it to. The second thing is, I want to encourage you, take time this next week, maybe even today, grab a person, grab a friend, maybe do it at lunch today, and just think about what it says in verses 1 to 12. Read through those. Read through them slowly and remember all of the things that it's just saying are true about you. It's all true in Christ, and he's saying that over you. And then let that lead you into what it says in verses 13 to 21, the imperatives, the commands that we've been looking at all morning.